0: Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Can a building disappear? Can cats be compassionate? What is heaven? Hello and welcome to the 667th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul
1: and Ben Eno. I am Ben and those varied questions came from my co-host, my dad, and partner in the paranormal, Paul. And, uh, and so are two different people. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know... You know It's like two separate persons in one, Uh, who knows, multiple personalities technically. So we are foregoing a guest today so that we can go through uh, some cases in our new book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, which has just hit store shelves. And uh, we welcome your calls this afternoon. Numbers are 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, and uh, 401-766-1240 anywhere here in the northern Rhode Island area. And we will monitor emails, paul at behindtheparanormal.com for emails.
0: So, shall we begin the shameless uh, promotion of our new tome?
1: I, I suppose so. I like they use the word tome.
0: Yes, uh, the ponderous uh, volume of uh, <laughs> esoteric knowledge, right?
1: Oh, yeah, right. All right.
0: So, uh, well, <clears throat> actually, uh, we if anybody's watching on a computer with the lovely little webcam we have here in the studio, there's... Uh, there's the, uh, the the book. We've been uh, promoting it there. And it has arrived in stores. Uh, we are uh, receiving reports of sightings from uh, Barnes and Nobles Sweet. around the country. Yes,
1: our show reporters are telling yes.
0: reporting in. Yes, indeed. And uh, uh so, you know, you can also get it at Amazon.com, et cetera, et cetera. However, let's talk about some of the, uh, there were over 50 cases of uh, ghost poltergeists, uh, disappearing things that you probably have never read about before, things of this kind, uh, many of which uh, either I or we were involved with personally and uh, tell from our own perspective. So uh, let's look at the uh, Amityville case, the very famous Amityville case on which the book and movie, The Amityville Horror, uh, were based. Uh, ben was not even a glint in uh, his parents' eyes at that point, however, uh, he has grown up with some stories about a lot of the things I was involved with from the early 70s until his advent uh, in the <laughs> 90s and his joining uh, in the my work God. in 2005 with the Haunted Policeman Case of Vermont. <laughs> Thank and you for
1: chronicling my life, Father.
0: <laughs> yes, it can be done uh, in a lot more than 25 words So. Now, the Amityville case, of course, was uh, occurring uh, with Ed and Lorraine Warren, uh, people I worked with for uh, several, well, a number of years in the 1970s. And the story kind of began on November 13th, 1974. People are familiar very often with the, you know, Ben, with the, uh, the actual um, uh, book, of course, and the story and the movie, but not necessarily with what actually happened.
1: Yeah, no, it, it seems as if the concern for the truth is, is more replaced with the concern for entertainment than anything else. Well,
0: precisely. That, that's what they do. Uh, as a matter of fact, in a few weeks, we're going to have uh, Andrea Perone on the show, um, whom has been, I've never met, has been a Facebook friend for a number of years, but said, that I've been waiting patiently for an invitation to come on your show, and we're going to have her on in, in a few weeks. So that's uh, not nothing to do with the Amityville case. And um, could you... Yeah.
1: I will take this. From okay, you.
0: yeah, we have a, a special present to distribute here. So the Amityville case, uh, I almost was involved in that, and again, it was 1974 started uh, in Amityville, Long Island. Uh, however, uh, I was involved with the Warrens at the time, but I was in the seminary uh, at the other end of New York State in the town of Ogdensburg, uh, way up by the St. Lawrence River, so I was not within easy reach of Long Island at the time. Uh, and, of course, the... Um, the case began, uh, again, Amityville, Long Island, New York, and it was uh, 6.30 p.m. on November 13th when, a, the, uh, I guess, the uh, antagonist in this story, uh, Ronald DeFeo Jr., uh, who was known locally as Butch, uh, came flying through the door of a bar he frequented, uh, which was ironically named the Witch's Brew, and he hollered that someone had just shot his parents. And uh, horrified, several men went back to the soon-to-be-famous waterfront house, you know, with, with the two windows that look like eyes. I understand those have now been removed because of the tourism. As uh, at 112 Ocean Avenue in uh, Amityville uh, with Butch, and they ran upstairs. They found uh, Ronald DeFeo uh, Sr., 43 years old, uh, Louise DeFeo, his mother, who was 42 years old. Uh, they were both in bed. They had been shot. Uh, the, and unfortunately, of course, the two younger brothers and two sisters uh, had been killed in their own bedrooms nearby often a horrifying horrifying thing now most people uh, have heard the story that all this paranormal stuff occurred later on there was an invisible friend uh, that was uh, present uh, at the in the life of uh, the daughter of the family that moved in after uh, this occurred that that's the Lutz family uh, George Lutz uh, was uh, the next owner of the house with his wife and uh, he would; he- they would begin to hear things and see things that were associated supposedly with this this murder. Now, I heard about this from uh, letters that Lorraine Warren wrote to me uh, during this case. Yeah, and, uh, I was just going to ask, Lee, what was Lorraine's take on all of it? Well, she, um, I, I, you know, I often wonder if they really trusted me. I mean, to the point where they could, I, I don't know, I don't know, that's not the right word. I think the Warrens trusted me, but they didn't let me in on some of the inner circle stuff because I think that there was a lot to this case, in, to, to sum up in a nutshell, what happened in this case was, um, in, in the opinion of someone I trusted a lot more, mm-hmm. Father John Nicola, the Jesuit priest who was the technical advisor for the film The Exorcist, uh, he said this Emeryville case was a hoax. That was good enough for me. Now, uh, you know what I have to do? I, I have to dig out those letters, and we should do a show on that, and I'll read them. I mean, Lorraine is, you know, I, I have a great respect for her personally. Uh, Ed passed away several years ago, um, and they were like p- parents to me. I mean, I was a young student. I was in my 20s, and um, we had a, a lot of uh, happy times together. It had nothing to do with cases, but um, there were a lot of things that kind of made me a little bit nervous, and uneasy and by 1978 i kind of bowed out of associ- association with them um, and ed and i kind of mutually agreed not to see each other again <laughs> <coughs> something like that oh. although it was um amicable amityville amicable right oh yes so uh, in any case um this this kind of went on and on and uh it, it everybody got into the act now one of, one of my criticisms of the warrens was that they did not keep things under wraps. Uh, in all the cases I was involved with them, you know, the the, the press was invited in almost immediately. And uh, it, in the Amityville case, it really turned into a circus. And now, again, did they
1: ever? This is something I always wondered. Why did they? Why did they do that? Did they, did they ever like sort of like give you an explanation like, oh, this is definitely going to help, or like?
0: Well, I was again. I was a young seminary student. Um, I had the same quote unquote theological beliefs they had, and there was kind of. Pop theology, in some ways, I think, but you know, I was still at a relatively low level, and I, I um, was believing, along with them, that these things were caused by demons, and this and the whole parasite thing really had no. I mostly
1: meant the involvement of the press.
0: Oh, the press, I'm sorry. Yeah, they, um, well, <clears throat> to, not to put too fine a point on it, people who make a living at this want all the publicity they can get. Well, did they ever, like, um, oh, what's the word? Did they ever rationalize
1: why they did that? Like what to was, me? Yeah.
0: No, it was kind of something you just did. Oh. See, I then, did. I didn't really question oh. them, and, and when I did, is when the relationship kind of started to fail. Oh. Because okay. you didn't question the gods of paranormal research. You know. That makes sense. And, and you know, in all fairness to them, uh, they were just about. They were among the very few who were doing this at the time. Now, I mean, you can stand on on the. Uh, the street corner in any city in america and throw pebbles and you're going to hit some somebody who's a ghost hunter quote unquote right or something if they're a demonologist you know people who have no business doing any of that and uh th- i mean th- their background was um essentially uh as artists matter of fact warren wasn't wasn't even their real name it was more of a you know n- not to say they were disarmed but a lot of artists and writers have pen names okay? Right. so uh you know that's fine On Ed's. Gravestone is his correct name, but uh, again, this doesn't mean anything uh, negative. But um, And Warren rolls off the tongue a little more easily. But um, they um, he would call in the press. He knew a lot of people in the media, um, particularly in the Bridgeport case, which we're not going to talk about today, the Poltergeist case, but it is recounted in our book, at least my impressions of it when I was there with them. Uh, they uh, called in the press routinely. I mean, in, in the Bridgeport case, I talked to a lot of reporters, and one of the things I was concerned about was not permitting them to use my last name because I'd get in trouble with my seminary superiors, which it turned out I did anyway. <clears throat> and they threw me out a few years later because of, the, of this kind of stuff. But So now here's a question that, I, that just sort of popped into my mind. So
1: what was the press's – well, the press's reaction was obviously like sensationalism, yeah. but – why? Why around this time in in Ameri- in American history, especially in journalistic history, were they giving credence to this stuff? Was it was it just like a, like a, like a just you know an interesting story to print about, even if it was a yeah. hoax? Like, what, what was the reasoning?
0: Well, the um, Exorcist movie, I think, what was. It's difficult to underestimate that as a a cause of renewed interest in the paranormal, which which really started in the late '60s. Uh, you had the uh, Anton LaVey and his Church of Satan and all this business. And there was a lot of interest among the, the uh, if, well, for lack of a better term, the hippie crowd. Right. Okay? And it was really the genesis of the whole New Age movement. It was really in the late 60s. Oh, okay. But yeah. when this, when 1973 came about, the end of 1973, The Exorcist was released. And that really uh, brought the notion of of the the paranormal and particularly hauntings and demons and all to the popular mind, people who were not necessarily hippies or involved in the New Age movement. Right. So it really became a cultural phenomenon. Uh, So you had um, people who had never thought about this stuff before going to see this this, uh, blockbuster horror movie. And uh, there you had it. And then Father Nicola said he was sorry he ever got involved in that film because uh, <clears throat> you know it created all this hullabaloo. Well, why did he get involved in it? Well, he was the the, uh, the greatest exorcist expert at the time in America, all hush hush course. this was always hush. Well, hush. didn't
1: didn't he know what the movie was going to be about?
0: Well, he did. As a matter of fact, he he was one of the reasons he was the technical advisor was not just for the the theology behind these phenomena, right? but because he, the original case on which The Exorcist was based, he had involvement in that. Right. That was in Maryland.
1: So, well, since he was the, the technical advisor, didn't he know that this was going to be, you know, like, not, not like a manual and like, okay, well, you know, fighting good and evil or whatever, but more a horror movie. Did they not explain to him what was going on? Yeah,
0: was... yeah, I guess they did. But, I mean, he, he thought, well, he, as he explained it to me, because I met him through, my brother, your uncle, who right. was a priest and a professor at Catholic university, and father nicola was the had the very anonymous job of being Assistant director of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, that huge church that 's across from the seminary yeah and uh, in that job, he could kind of lay low and go around the country and assist with exorcisms, do stuff like this well he uh essentially said that it was better to have his involvement, who actually knew about the subject than to have them just just go haywire oh, and do anything okay. yeah. So it's, it's the, uh, sort of influence for the good from inside kind of theory. Which sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't work. So in this case it didn't work. He didn't think so after he saw the final product. Fair enough. He'd never been involved with a movie before. At least not that he told me. Especially a big budget one. Yeah. So when the whole Amityville thing uh, came around, uh, it was, it was, it, well the actual crime took place in 1974, 75, 76, things were, were going, the Warrens were involved, uh, and this was, um, it, popular in, in, in the cultural mind by this time, really largely because of the Exorcist movie, in my opinion. And the media uh, looked at every opportunity to get involved with uh, these cases and to report on them or accurately or inaccurately.
1: Because it would lead to viewers and readers.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, the Warrens were just sort of fed into that, and they became known as people a reporter could, uh, either broadcast or print, could go to for a great story.
1: So really, they were just... They had really good timing.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the Warrens had been involved in this since the fifties. Right. Okay. And again, by trade, they were artists. And a matter of fact, there was an art studio um, on their property. And there was—I remember when when they rebuilt their house. Uh, I was friends with them at the time, and, and they built a tunnel from the basement of the house to the barn. And in the corner of the tunnel, where it turned, was their so-called occult museum. With, with, with that, with that Annabelle doll, the right. one from the Conjuring film, yeah, so I, yeah, I knew yeah. Annabelle pretty well, who was actually Raggedy and doll. <laughs> we were pretty good. We were pretty close friends. Oh, All yeah, yeah, right, and had this big sign, you know, "Do not touch under any circumstances." I mean, for Pete's sake, I don't know. So, uh, <clears throat> but I must say, it was kind of creepy walking by there by myself in this uh, twilight tunnel kind of thing. So, in any case, um, I mean, I, I remember them as as great folks, uh, but I just had some questions about how they kind of conducted these cases. So right. you and I don't make a living at this.
1: No, you know, very just,
0: obviously. <laughs> yeah. This is part of my work as a journalist, as is this show. And, uh, you know, I'm honored to work with you as as my son and a colleague. It's, uh-huh. it's really very few parents have that, that honor. Uh-huh. And uh, I'd have you by my side any time in any emergency. Buttering me up. Yeah, cause I got, I asked you a favor after the show. That's, yes. yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, uh, but, so we don't have, I hope, a vested interest in, yeah, we write books about this. We don't have a vested interest in things being weird. But people who make a living at it do. And I think that uh, the Amityville case, perhaps, uh, and certainly I think it is, is one of those cases. So, um uh, that essentially was it. And of course, uh, a lot of, uh, um, other people got involved in the case, including the few prominent investigators at the time, like Hans Holzer at yeah. one point and a few others. Uh, there were uh, so, accusations flying back and forth of hoaxes and all this business.
1: Well, I mean, um, what what ultimately
0: led you to believe that it was a hoax? Father Nicola telling me that it was. Well, obviously, yeah. yeah. So what, <clears throat> see, I, see, you know me. I always try to look at the good side of people. Right. You know, and I included anybody who was involved in these things. But then I started to notice things that didn't add up. Um, I, I would report something, and it would be rep- that I had experienced uh, in, during a case, and it would be reported to the press and exaggerated. Things, things like that I, I, that just I, I wasn't comfortable with that.
1: Yeah, that sounds about so, right.
0: So what we'll do, is, Sean, I'll dig out Lorraine's letters, and we'll uh, we'll just uh, we'll rehash that case. But I don't want to take the whole show just to do the Amityville. No, thing. So, no, no. We did want to move on to some of the other things. Uh, in Chapter Eight of our book, uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know Is Wrong, uh, there is the um, there are several cases of disappearing property. Now I don't mean, I shouldn't say property buildings this sort of thing. Uh, one of them is uh, is a case that also was re- I, although I expanded on it a little was reported in uh, the the 2002 book face, uh, Footsteps in the Attic. I remember my own books, Faces of the, uh, the Phantom House in Vermont. And this is this has generated a lot of interest in the town of Johnson, Vermont, and in the whole state. Mm-hmm. And uh, NPR, our good friend Joe Citro, oh, yes. a wonderful fellow, a great author of fiction and nonfiction, uh, who had a, a show on uh, Vermont Public Radio for a long time. Yes, the Bard of the Bazaar. The Bard of the Bazaar, yes. whom we have to we haven't had him on the show in a while. We have to. No, no. It, no. Yeah. Uh, it was. There's a lot of strange creatures in Vermont, some of which are fanciful. Uh, I remember the one the who walked around <laughs> mountains. One leg was longer than the other because it would be downhill. Anyway, um, <laughs> so th- certainly a weird case. And I was in, this is in the wake of the Bridgeport thing of 1974. It was in the summer of 75. Uh, I was uh, a seminary student and was visiting a, a friend in Vermont. And uh, all, he said, I've got some people coming to see you. And sure enough, up the, uh, the driveway in a red pickup uh, bounces this... Um, uh, these two surveyors, okay, and they came up on the porch, and and you know we were having a, just a beer. It was a nice summer evening, and uh, I did, I didn't know these guys from Adam, and my friend said, "You're going to tell them or not?" And he said, "Well, he's, he, Paul's going to think we had too many beers." I said, "No, no, i you know I just came out of this. Other, they they'd all heard about this Bridgeport thing, and so uh, make a long story short, they were as I say surveyors." And they've been working in the town of Johnson, which was not near where we were uh, in Vermont, uh, in the mountains, a lovely place. And they said they uh, were, as they said at the time, walking the bounds. They were getting ready to survey, and they were just checking out the boundaries of the, of the track that they were supposed to be surveying. And they uh, were looking at a uh, U.S. Geological Survey map, uh, which has most of the, of the buildings on it in a particular quadrant, right? Right. So they were walking down hill, and there was a house at the bottom of the hill on an old road, and it wasn't on the map, and it was an old, old house. As a matter of fact, they said it looked as though it had never been painted. So they uh, kind of went down, and there were a lot of odd things about this house. There were no wires, uh, telephone or electrical, running to it, and they said there were no vehicles in the driveway. There were some clothes on the clothesline, so it was occupied, mm-hmm. uh, and it did look as though it had never been painted. And they said they came down into the road. They, they wondered if anyone was there so they could ask where their property lines were. And uh, all of a sudden, a man came around the side of the house with an axe over his shoulder, big beard like you, Ben. Thank you. And, uh, well, they don't have an axe with you, do you? No. Uh, yeah, an old hat kind of thing. And they called to him. But he acted as though he didn't see them. He, he kind of stopped and looked around. But it, it, They were standing maybe 30, 40 feet from him on, in the road. And he acted as though he didn't see them, but it, but it sounded as though it, it seemed as though he could hear them a little. So he, um, th- they kind of figured that maybe it's time to back off because, as one of them told me, there are still some pretty strange people in these hills. Yeah. Okay. Especially the guy had an axe, so they kind of backed off and they said, "Well, we'll we'll deal with it when the time comes." So the next week they're out there with their equipment, they're doing the surveying, and they get they got to that spot, no house, Was wasn't it? there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they were really creeped out. As we would say today, uh, there was an old foundation. There. I was
1: going to say there was an old foundation there. Was there was an old right? foundation
0: yeah. there, yeah. And, uh, one of them went to the town hall and, and they looked up some land records because they, you know, the surveyors spent a lot of time in town halls looking up land records. Yeah. And he happened to find that there was a house that had burned down about 1910. Uh, but there was no, no further information. Um, so th- that's that's all they knew, and they took me up there in this truck, and we were bouncing down this road, and uh, I saw it for myself, at least the, the old cellar hole. Now, New England is not, uh, it's not uncommon to find old cellar holes where there had been houses, but there had, there had apparently been a fire. There was, uh, even at that late date, you know what, uh, f- uh, 40 years later, there was some charring Around there, and a, and a lot of uh, uh, creeping flocks, the, the plant which yeah, uh, yeah, frequents that those sorts of areas. But yeah, there's, um,
1: there's a lot, there's a lot of places like that in Vermont too. Yeah. There was there was a place I I was at probably not too far from there, and um, I was going to help a few of my film school buddies record some sound effects, and they filmed a couple scenes of their film in this like abandoned like row of houses that was just in the middle of nowhere like when the power came i guess it was as it was explained to me by the director who lived there like all his life he's like yeah when the power came some people like uh, like the roads didn't go far enough the power didn't come far enough so they would just up and leave their houses (laughs) so so there was there was like stuff there as if like people were just eating breakfast it's really creepy wow yeah like foundations of buildings just left over it was a really creepy place
0: well, I don't usually get creeped yeah.
1: out, but it was a creepy place. Yeah,
0: no, I I've, I've uh, very rarely. You usually you collapse and go into trances rather than get, get creeped out. But, yeah, yeah. 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 But anyway, <laughs> um, no, that, that was uh, so. From, uh, there you go. I mean, we never found out any more about it. But uh you know, the one thing I learned from the Warrens was that you you can you can read people pretty well. You can tell whether whether they're they're giving you baloney or not when it comes to this, mm-hmm. and and you can also tell. When, and you and I've run into this more than once whether people are doing this because they want publicity. Yeah. You know, they're a little too interested in what's going on and they're a little too captivated by it and uh, you think, you know, maybe, you know, everybody wants a TV show or everybody wants to maybe get a book out of this, you know, book deal. Yeah. So that's, um, I don't know. So I, that that turns me off, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: And yeah, you definitely. too, I know, so we kind yeah. of avoid that. But that was not the case with these two surveyors. They seemed very, very sincere Uh um, Right down the line, uh, n- n- not uh, not people who were comfortable with this kind of experience. They were shaken by it. Yeah. And uh, again, uh, two of them saying this, uh, not just one. Well, I can
1: understand that, too, especially when you look up in the land records immediately
0: after that. Like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, uh, moving on uh, from New England uh, all the way out to Utah. Oh, okay. We have one minute. All right. Yes. Uh, we can start this. Anyway, uh, it was in 1996 that I gave a, uh, you were, what, three? Four. Four. Uh, Yep. There we go. And uh, I was speaking in Providence at one of the big churches down there, and there was a group of people who were interested in the paranormal, a a senior citizens group. And uh, someone came up to me afterwards, and uh, she had written notes on her and her husband's experience. And they were people who were very – they were both retired bankers. They were not, you know, uh, unsophisticated people in in the sense of education or anything else. Yeah. And they had been – in Utah, traveling in the West. And they were both very interested in history and particularly ghost towns, okay, abandoned towns. And uh, they had a map of Utah ghost towns. I said, well, let's check out this place called Woodard. And someone had told them at a hotel, well, you're not going to find anything at Woodard. It's just there's nothing there anymore. So they um, uh, said, well, maybe there's some artifacts so we could, you know, find some stuff on the ground. Because, you know, you never know with these places. Mm -hmm. So out they go to Woodard, and the first thing they see as they approach the town is a sign... It says it didn't say Welcome' in English, it said Vilcome, so they said, What is this German?" and maybe and the first thing they thought maybe it's a, an Amish or Mennonite community, you know, which speaks a form of low German, at least the Amish do, yeah, then they, they get in, and there's a, a fully operating town, but everything was kind of strange, and I'm going to leave it there because I have to take our break. Uh, We'll return to Woodard, or the Phantom Woodard, uh, shortly. But you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on ON1240 in the New England's beautiful Blackstone Valley. ON1240 now celebrating its 70th anniversary on the air. So congratulations to 1240, and we'll be right back. Stay with us. This is Paul Taylor.
1: And I'm Dave Koz, inviting you to listen to the Dave Koz Radio Show when saxophonist Paul Taylor joins me here in the studio. Remember to visit DaveKoz.com for all the details and be here this weekend, Paul Taylor and yours truly, plus great weekend music, on the Dave Koz Radio Show.
0: Hi, smooth jazz fans. The Dave Koz Radio Show can only be heard on
1: ON1240, WOON one Socket Radio every Sunday, twice this Sunday,
0: 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. and then 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. The Dave Coz Radio Show is sponsored by Papa John's Pizza. Better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. The Dave Coz Radio Show, right here on Owen Radio. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. We're famously uh, self-promoting our book today, uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong. And uh, from Schiffer Publishing, now in bookstores. And we're going over some of the uh, really esoteric and strange disappearing places Uh, That have we have either um, had personal encounters with the witnesses or uh, have uh, otherwise found out about. And uh, but before that, Ben, why don't we give a shout out to St. Michael's Ukrainian Orthodox Church here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, where we have a lot of friends. And until recently, our cousin was was the uh, the priest there, and a lot of great folks. And the 75th anniversary today. Yes, so many years to them. Many years to them. And congratulations. God bless. Okay, so we were talking about a living ghost town in Utah. It's on, it's on chapter eight of our book. Uh, and we have, <clears throat> we and I was uh, hearing this from one of the witnesses, uh, elderly lady in Providence, Rhode Island, retired. Her husband were, and she and her husband were traveling, uh, touring western uh, historic sites, particularly ghost towns. And they re- arrived at Woodard, Utah, which was not supposed to exist. And there was a, a very strange town where everybody spoke Dutch. They, well, they later found out it was Dutch, and she had written down a lot of the things that were said to them, and I, ch- I had it checked with a Dutch friend, and sure enough, it was, so willkommen on the sound of it is welcome. And a lot of English speakers would recognize words in Low German or Dutch, or e- even maybe German sometimes, uh, but Dutch particularly because uh, they're, they're very similar words. So they went into a restaurant. The cars were very strange. They said they were all the same, very boxy, almost little SUV-type things. So in they go to a restaurant, and uh, they couldn't read the menu because it was in Dutch, apparently, and uh, but there were pictures of the various dishes there, and so they ordered from that. The, um, the, the fellow who owned the place, apparently, uh, couldn't speak English either, and when they said they, the, so they had some sandwiches, they were very good, and when they went to pay, apparently the proprietor did not recognize American money or paper money. And he got rather flustered and, and and said something in Dutch to the point well, we we don't accept that. So they were very nervous. The people who were te- the woman telling me the story, she and her husband, and out from their pockets and pocketbooks, they fished out some quarters, and the man accepted those as payment. Apparently, very very cheap sandwiches at this place. So when they went out, uh, the people were gathered around their their vehicle, which is very different from any of the others uh, in the town, and um, they said we. Just better get out of here because this is just too creepy. So, off they went, driving very slowly because they didn't want to end up in a violation of any bizarre speed laws that might have occurred. Traffic laws.
1: You know what's and, really interesting? I, I I just looked this up now because I I was like, what? Huh? Apparently, it existed until 1950.
0: Really? Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. You're right. Because I yeah, looked it up too. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently,
1: yeah. the that's around that time, 1950, yeah. is when the post office shut down. And the, um, some some other government thing shut down too, and then this whole town just, just, just. Yeah, stopped, because you know?
0: according to the, the local people, or at least the people in Utah who know about this stuff and the stories, there was nothing left. No buildings left. So, they, I mean, they, they might have been taken down and stripped for their, their, uh, I mean, their building probably, material yeah. value. I mean, they yeah. wouldn't just have vanished.
1: Yeah, no, they wouldn't just leave it there. I feel like, I feel like, cause it's, you know, it's like right after World War II. I mean, <laughs> yeah.
0: But after this, uh, Dutch speaking village incident that that apparently vanished because it was never reported again.
1: Yeah, that's what's interesting. Yeah. So I mean maybe oh
0: and you know uh, we have people write to the show and we hear about all these things that, that we don't necessarily see ourselves. We do see a lot of ourselves in cases but this is secondhand information. But again, I you know it, they could be fruitcakes, but this woman was very serious um and you know she obviously w- was good friends with the people in the senior group to whom I was speaking and uh, was respected. And uh, these are the sorts of people would make this stuff up, so I mean we, we things like that I, I tend to at least present at face value for our readers or listeners to make a judgment for themselves, but all we can do is is deliver uh, what we do run into now uh, <clears throat> there is um, there were some very strange reports also of phantom islands, and being a veteran of the u s coast Guard. Um, I would uh, sometimes be in places where I could talk to old sailors, and I'm thinking particularly of Puerto Rico, uh, where people supposedly have, in days of yore, had reported being in these islands. Uh, And any sailor pretty much will run into stories about this. Uh, There is um, the Isle of Demons, uh, uh, the Emerald Isle, not not meaning Ireland, St. Brendan's Island, Brazil with an S and many more, including the mother of all phantom islands, Atlantis. So in Puerto Rico in, in 1984, uh, I spoke with two retired sailors, both in their 80s at the time, who swore they'd once vi- visited, visited Bermeja. Okay, an island charted by the Spanish in the 1500s, but apparently it vanished by the 1840s. Now, uh, cartography, uh, was not what it what is today, and mm-hmm. certainly there are, no, there are no satellites to do stuff, but some of the maps of the early, uh, sailors and explorers of the Americas 1500s, uh, 1600s, were really quite um, quite quite accurate considering the technology uh, because their math skills were, were quite good so uh, Phantom Islands, I mean they uh, were um, really, really uh, I don't know, people swear that they, they were strange and well, there's a tie in even with the uh, Rendlesham Forest UFO case believe it or not, because the the, the uh, 1980 sightings by various members of the Air Force, U.S. Air Force, uh, in England, uh, the place uh, where we have been and, and are still investigating, uh, a lot of uh, corollary reports of, of strange phenomena still going on there, uh, involved a uh, what, what our friend Bill Penniston claims, one of the uh, Air, Force, Air Force security people claims, when he touched one of the craft that had landed in the forest, uh, he said there was a binary download as he called it, of, of binary codes, which turned out years later to be uh, coordinates, uh, Earth coordinates, ge- geographic coordinates, uh, latitude and longitude, apparently, uh, of this Brazil, the, this this B-R-A-S-I-L, uh, island or whatever, uh, as something significant for the planet Earth and its people, uh, even though he didn't believe these were alien craft, he believed these were time travelers. Okay, So whatever that may be, uh, there was a tie-in with a... Uh, a uh, phantom island, even in the Rendlesham Forest case. Uh, and now one of the more interesting in, incidents of a phantom place happened to a British couple, uh, well, in 1933, while they were on vacation, and I heard about this, uh, later on, uh, they were, um, involved in a, and we had a guest from near this town of Boss Castle. Oh yeah. Uh, in, in Cornwall, um, and he, uh, knew, knew the place pretty well. Uh, they, encountered a hilltop inn uh a break uh, and they were on a bus that stopped and uh, they were with a tour group they went ahead and had a a, uh lunch at the inn which i thought was absolutely charming Mm -hmm. and later on they went down to stay at a hotel in the town uh now that, that apparently the tour group had ended and then they they decided to hike up to the hotel the next day and stay there um that night but when they got there the hotel was gone and they they were absolutely sure. I so said there was just a, was a straight road right up to where it was. And you hear a lot of these these things uh, in England, um, and you wonder if it gets into some of our multiverse ideas if that's correct about the crossing world boundaries. And uh, we we have had experiences ourselves and many others who have experiences of uh, you know all of a sudden you're here then you're there or all of a sudden th- this is one color and then then it's another you know you just don't know. There seems to be Something like um, Swiss cheese, uh, the multiverse, you know, you, you kind of have this and that happening. Yeah. And uh, the building is there, and then it's not. Uh, now, there's another case from England, uh, also from the early 30s. Uh, it's always intrigued us. It happened in Wiltshire in the southern part of the country. That's where Stonehenge is. Yeah. I remember one time I was going by Stonehenge in an ordinary British car, you know, left-hand drive and, and uh, shifting with my right hand. Uh, I should say right-hand drive, shifting with my left hand. And a 1963 Chevy comes barreling by me at about 90 miles an hour, right past Stonehenge. It was just kind of an odd kind of juxtaposition <laughs> of scene, probably American Air Force people. Uh, so there's, um, again, this other case from England uh, where Stonehenge is. I was on a particular Sunday afternoon. And a young girl was bicycling um, to another village to see a friend. And she was traveling one of those old Roman roads. And a lot of, even the motorways today, what we would call interstate highways, are uh, follow the, the paths of old Roman roads. In That's
1: Britain. interesting. I
0: never knew that. Yeah. Because the Romans were, were excellent engineers, not so great poets, very good engineers. Right. And they they knew where to put a road and how to lay it out. And so the armies could move around and pick on everybody, but the, the roads were there
1: yeah.
0: and uh, were improved upon, and many of them uh, today are still used, the same routes anyway.
1: Oh, hence the saying, all roads lead to Rome.
0: Pre- precisely. Oh, that makes sense. Precisely,
1: yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> Learn something new every day. Absolutely. Uh,
0: so anyway, so there's this uh, the girl's name is Edna, and she's following one of those roads, and everybody says, aha, maybe it's because the road was haunted or something. But a sudden rainstorm came up, and uh, she uh, took refuge of a beautiful little thatched cottage. I uh, said there was a funny old man with long gray hair who seemed very kind, smiled, let her in, and uh, said he wore an old-fashioned dark green coat with shiny buttons. And she came on to... Uh, a leprechaun? Perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Uh, he was uh, smoking a pipe. Uh, he kindly invited her inside, and the rain stopped. And she found a comfortable little living room with a very strange bird in a cage. But the funny thing was, you know, there was this lovely place. She didn't hear a sound. What do you mean? Like, she didn't hear anything. The man never spoke. The bird never said anything, and she she couldn't hear the fire burning. And it was right in the fireplace, and she couldn't hear a thing. So this guy just let her in and just didn't say anything to her. Well, until the, no, just really? smiled, nodded his head. You know, and if he did say anything, she didn't hear it. So it, it makes, it, I, I've seen this kind of thing. Um, as a matter of fact, I was on a show, not ours, but some other show the other night, and uh, the, the issue of the, the children under the stairs came up from Ottawa, Canada in 19, oh, yes. yeah, in 1979 when I was there, and um, th- they didn't see, nobody heard anything from those children either, and it, it looked as though one of them was crying. You couldn't hear anything. So um, this Hmm. is something we run into. Um, That's interesting. Very often, you know, you will have a a so-called ghost experience, and we believe it's somebody just in a parallel reality, having their own, doing their own, uh, going about their day. And you can can hear, but uh, you can't, you can see it, but you can't hear it. Uh, Other times you can hear it, but you can't see it. That sounds like all the dimensions aren't quite in place. Yeah, it does sound like that. Like the fate that we we always talk about this a lot, the ox cart driver in Pomfret, Connecticut, 1971. Six of us stood there. Thing goes by, heard it, heard the guy yelling, heard the hoofbeats of the oxen or whatever they were, heard the wooden wheels. Couldn't hear, couldn't see it. Hmm. And then in the same place, we heard all these children laughing. Couldn't see them either. So that you know, you've you've got uh, concurrent phenomena that. Uh, you can one, one it touches one of your senses, not the other. So but it's this interesting because
1: you here. usually hear about voices and stuff, but you never hear like, uh, pardon the pun, you never you never you never hear of people, or not that not as often as you hear like EVPs and stuff like that, where you just see something and nothing, no sounds are, are occurring from. Especially if it's something that's so vivid. Exactly. And well, well, that's
0: another layer. I mean, I mean, you you know more about. Sound than I do because that's what you studied in school. But the EVPs, the electronic voice phenomenon, it's a big thing today. Uh, people will um, <clears throat> not only record what, what they popularly call spirit voices. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think it's any of the kind necessarily. Uh, but they have people talking and they record today. And I've recorded things like that myself, even with old reel-to-reel tape recorders in days of yore. Yeah. Now and then.
1: Yeah, I mean I mean not to not to discourage it. I mean, you know, it's it's definitely a legitimate. Could be something definitely case. legitimate phenomenon. It's just, you know, it, there there's a lot of questions I have about it.
0: Yes, exactly. That, uh, that
1: there are there are seemingly no answers to.
0: Yeah, exactly. So um but that's uh the sound and you know, whatever senses are being stimulated here. But in any case, uh the rain stopped and the left and uh naturally found out later on that this cottage hadn't been occupied for fifty years. And, uh, it was all r- run down and broken down and sort of thing. So. A strange bird. Very, very strange. I ran into Merlin. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, we also have a section in chapter eight called The Ins and Outs of Ins. You know, the uh, particular experience in France. And I actually talked to these people. Uh, they had, um, been, uh, you know, again at a, uh, the place didn't disappear, but they drove, they were driving in Friends, an English couple, two, uh, two, uh, two English couples, driving, two British couples, driving in, uh, to, for, in, through France, going to Avignon, yeah, and they parked at the side of the road. Lovely inn. They went. Uh, they went in there, and uh, everything was kind of strange. They were. You, this is the day, days before the euro. This mm-hmm. is back in the seventies, and they were using French francs. And uh, they had a lovely meal. Uh, everybody seemed to be dressed in nineteenth-century clothing. Kind of gave them funny looks. No other cars, uh, and yet they could see their car across the road from the inn. Yeah. Uh, there was no parking lot just parked on the side of the road uh, they slept in a room there was no electricity but very very comfortable beds you know uh, feathers and all the I stuff was going to say like it.
1: down com- yeah down com- covers, that yeah. sort of thing
0: and a lovely meal the next morning and they asked two police officers where the uh, the highway was and they uh, or the motorway whatever they call it in France and uh, they kind of looked at them as if they had never heard of the term before uh, loto route they used the word the French word loto route which oh, is oh yeah you know, high- and, uh, cops didn't know. So they kind of pointed vaguely in the direction of Avignon. Then they went to pay, all right? And, uh, there was no problem taking the money, uh, the, the uh, proprietor, the clerk, uh, because, and I looked it up, and the French franc has, had really had not changed in its, the, the metal coin, the franc coin, yeah. had not changed. It was only, it was only like, like two or three francs for the whole, they, they were flabbergasted. It should have been, you know, 30 or 40, right?
1: Yeah.
0: At, at, since the uh, 18, 1880s and the 1970s. Very little change in the look of the coin. Except for the date, which is so small, you'd really have to look at it. Yeah. So which, which um, I'm surprised they didn't look at. Well, no. You, well, when you, well, were, well, I, mean, yeah, well, I know I you've you know. never worked in retail, but if you uh, take a coin, you're not going to look at the date. I mean, paper money, they check I mean, for if that.
1: someone is dressed strangely, then...
0: Well, that's true. Well, apparently the guy didn't. He accepted the, the, the Frank coins without any problem. So off they were, well, they drove away, and they said, let's stay on the way back. They went to Avignon. Let's stay there on the way back. The place was in ruins, and people had said it had not been a hotel. In matter of fact, there was a police station next door, and they said it had not uh, been, been a functioning hotel in, in, like, like 80 years. Wow. So, uh, not, not that long. Maybe 50 or 60, but, uh, but there Still. You go. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <laughs> cool. what do we have here? We're like, time travel, and, and how exactly does that work? Remember...
1: How can I go somewhere and only pay $2? Yeah, tell study? me about it. Time travel is
0: worth it for that. But as that, that physicist told me, who's actually working on time theory, that uh, time is relative, as Einstein proved, and you don't move back and forth in time. You, you go move side sideways. Side. Yeah. You go side to side, which indicates that you know if that's correct, then this may be multiverse passing through the membranes of the various worlds all day long, and you get one that doesn't quite fit, you have a paranormal experience, or even time travel. And I don't think it's all that strange. I don't think it's all that unusual. I, well, it's strange, but it's not that unusual. Right. So there we go. Uh, one of the more ominous uh, mysterious places things in our Chapter 8 here is uh, death at Dyatlov Pass. Oh, yeah, And yes. we're talking about the 1959 case of the, uh, which is, it, it, I don't know, somehow it generated all kinds of interest when I talk about it on other shows, and we did a show here on that. And uh, we had, uh, of course, these, these are the days of the the Cold War and uh, the Soviet Union, and these were young uh, Soviet—not um, children, but you know, teenagers. teenagers yeah. uh, and one of them was an older fellow who, in his thirties, had been a World War II veteran, which was really rough in that part of the world, you know. And uh, they were heading headed north uh, from the—they uh, were at the um, uh, Ural Euro, Polytechnic Institute in Sverdlov, which is today uh, Ekaterinburg and that that school still exists it's, although now it's the Ural State Technical University and uh they were headed north 23 uh, year old igor diatlov who ended up getting the pass named after him uh, at least they could do as most uh they <laughs> were traveling as win- winter winter camping very very um rugged country needless to say up north of there uh in the mountains and uh you know, they had this kind of thing. You have to snowshoe and do all this stuff. Yeah. But the Soviet, um, the communist authorities uh, encouraged that kind of activity because it made you physically fit. In case you had to be drafted into the army, you already knew a lot of these skills, uh, survival skills. So they, um, what really made the case strange was that they there were there were a few pictures that were recovered from cameras there, not a lot. Uh, they got to a certain point at, at a mountain whose name essentially means Mount Don't Go There. Right. Yep. You know, uh, and there's another mountain. They were they were going to that mountain, and there was another one um, that they camped. uh, Very rather strange place. Now, one of the first things you learn in winter survival is you don't camp in the open, right? If if you can help it, and uh, but they camped above the tree line, which is very strange, especially in adverse weather conditions. So they should have camped down below the tree line where there was some shelter among the trees. There was one tent, and of course this is 1950s technology, so you didn't have uh, all sorts of, um, you know, really good light gear as you would have today. And uh, sometime in the middle of the night, something happened that panicked them. And, again, these are experienced campers. Uh, there had been apparently uh, they, they cut their way out of the tent with a knife, uh, started running very often um, very poorly clothed or with no shoes at all or boots through three and four feet of snow to try and get away from something. And uh, the bodies were later found in a very odd state. They were, of course, frozen. Two had apparently started a fire. Uh, and and the, the the young girl, one of the young girls that was with him, uh, had had her t- tongue re- removed, apparently surgically removed. And, of course, everybody thinks, aha, alien abduction. Well, maybe, I don't know. So the mystery of Dyatlov Pass has uh, perplexed everybody, uh, in all these years well, since the
1: police investigation was also terribly done. It so, was.
0: It was. And plus, it, because
1: it was the Soviet Union, nobody really cared. Well, so.
0: it was all—it was all kinds of corruption. Yeah. But the problem yeah. is, you know, when you f- investigate a site forensically, you are very careful not to you don't touch anything until real experts get there, and that you've documented everything uh, quite thoroughly. But uh, they, they drafted a lot of some of the local people, which were Mansi tribesmen, some of them, to come in and help with the search. Uh, the, the army, very interestingly, generals, uh, high ranking generals followed this whole thing, which is very strange. Um, helicopters came in, they're blowing everything around, uh, some of the, the evidence disappeared, uh, and, and w- there was one survivor who had come down with dysentery and had left the party of oh, yeah, That's right, yeah. Before. He lived till 2004, so he was a big celebrity as far as you know who, who do you talk to.
1: Yeah, I saw a documentary with him and they, oh, really? yeah, they interviewed him like yeah. it was like a year before it was U- he died. Oh Yeah, Yuri. Yuri uh, something. I forgot the Yeah, his it's, name. In yeah. it's in here. I, I remember watching it too, and he was yeah. just like, oh, "I could have been me."
0: <laughs> well, see, people have trouble pronouncing the Russian names on shows I've been on, but but you you are one quarter Russian, so you have. Uh, the ability to pronounce it oh yeah All right. yeah I, f- I forget his last name yeah on your mother's <laughs> side <so>. yeah <laughs> in any case uh he um did survive and he said that there, there were things that turned up in the evidence that were not with the party uh everything was fishy
1: yeah there's so. a lot a lot of weird uh, weird things that happened
0: yeah exactly and one of the one of the thing one of the well people ask me what do you think happened i mean I, <clears throat> for some reason I'm, I'm i'm considered somebody who can talk about this You've got well. Maybe it's because you think things through. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'll hopefully, do it correctly. But the the situation was you've got you've got people who were were all the bodies were found, but in, some had internal injuries, such as you were, really wouldn't have. The, the theories range from uh, grouchy uh, Bigfoot attack to um, alien abduction. to – and I, I happen to think this is this is the most likely scenario. Just judging from photographs I've seen of, of the scene. They may not have died there. They may have died somewhere else and were were put there.
1: Yeah, that that you makes know? the most sense because of where the bodies were scattered. Yeah. It just makes the most sense. I
0: think it might very well be the military. Right. There were a lot of uh, fluky things going on, or sketchy things, as they would say, that are going on in that part of Russia during the Cold War. Military experiments, uh, experiments with sonic weapons, which could have caused the kind of internal injuries that, Oh yeah! Were found uh, there were um, there was one evidence that, that one of the bodies had been frozen and then thawed and then frozen again. Uh, there, were, there was there was really high amount of uh, radioactivity, at least by their Geiger counters at the time. Yeah, yeah. Now a couple of them had now of course there was radioactivity everywhere at the time. We were when we were I was in uh, first grade at the time. We were told not to eat the snow you know, you kids, you go out, you, you eat the snow, you know. Yeah. Maybe not today, but because of nuclear tests, open air nuclear tests in the southwest of the United States in the late 50s, they said that some of the nuclear fallout had been uh, would be transported by weather, and uh, in the east, don't eat the snow, you know. So um, th- there could have been a reason for that, but I think that they may have stumbled upon somewhere else a um, perhaps a Soviet military operation, or and, and they were gotten rid of. But the thing is, why not just have them disappear? Why put them where they would be found?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I mean, there there was a lot of kids. Like, you know, their families would be asking questions if they just yeah. sort of disappeared. Like, I, I feel like it's more. Yeah, you know,
0: there were seven women and two men.
1: Maybe it was probably more prudent to create a mystery around it. So well,
0: it. They didn't even want to bury them back in Spared Law, so They wanted to bury them locally there, and the parents uh, went to the communist authorities and raised Cain and said, "You know, you bring them back here," and they finally did. And. There was um, there was a young boy. Matter of fact, I've talked to him, uh, who was it well, was obviously old now, but he remembers seeing the bodies um, when they arrived in Spadloz, and, and for some reason they weren't covered up. And he said that they were very tan and brown to a point where, the, just even frozen, you wouldn't think that. So it, it's a big mystery. So that's about all the time we have on that. But again, uh, the book behind the paranormal, everything you know is wrong uh, in stores now. Uh, check it out and uh, Amazon.com, or, or if your bookstore doesn't happen to have it in stock, uh, they can get it. So um, check it out, and again, uh, more information on our website behindtheparanormal.com.
1: Indeed, and it's on the shelves at Barnes and Noble as well. That's right.
0: So take it away, Ben. Actually, it's you. It is. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, this straight. Okay, we yeah we have been talking about that. Yes. Okay, so uh, now uh, brew lots of coffee on the night of Sunday, November 27th, because Ben and I will make another appearance on Coast to Coast AM with guest host George Knapp. Uh, here on the East Coast, that will be from, you ready, 2 a.m. to 5 a.m., which actually makes it Monday, November 28th, but it's a West Coast show, so you've got to deal with it. Uh, the show was on 654 stations across North America, so sh- you should certainly be able to find one to listen to. Uh, I don't think we're supposed to give call- other people's call letters on ON, ON here, but uh, just as a hint uh, for our local audience, there are such stations in Boston, Providence, and Worcester. And if you go to coast you can find the whole list and some more information. And our official book launch for the book we just have been talking about, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, uh, generously sponsored by ON1240 Radio, the launch event, uh, will be held at the Cumberland Public Library on Diamond Hill Road in Cumberland, Rhode Island on Thursday, December 1st from 6 to 8 p.m., uh, ben and I will make a presentation. Books will be on sale, and we will sign them. Uh, for more information, visit BehindTheParanormal.com or call the library at 401-333-2552, extension 128. You want to talk to Aaron. The event is free, but registration is requested by the library. Uh, you can register by phone or online at cumberlandlibrary.org. Click on the Events tab and then scroll down to December 1st. Uh, there is a limit of 100 people, so please register now.
1: And two days after that, on Saturday, December 3rd, we will have our first bookstore event at the Book Club, 100 Main Street in Broadbrook, Connecticut. And uh, that will be from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. So uh, there will be no formal presentation, but it's a great group of people, so come and hobnob with us. So
0: all you Connecticut peeps out there in our listening area, check that out. It's only in Broadbrook. It's not that far. And we'd love to meet you. So our publisher released the book early, so we're still scrambling to schedule bookstore events, so stay tuned, as they say.
1: Yes, and on Thursday, December 29th, uh, we will do a presentation and book signing at Winsocket's Harris Library. That's 303 Clinton Street, Winsocket, Rhode Island, and uh, that will run for uh, from... to 8 p.m.
0: And that will bring us to Thursday, January 19th, and the first, and the Franklin Public Library, uh, in temporary digs at 25 Kenwood Circle, Franklin, Massachusetts. That begins at 6.30 p.m. And again, check our website for more uh, interesting information on that. Uh, new book events, some far away from our beloved Blackstone Valley, are uh, being added frequently and we are going to be adding up. So check BehindTheParanormal.com or our show Facebook page for updates.
1: You can also check out our YouTube channel, Behind the Paranormal uh, Case Files, and that is up and running. Our third video is about the paranormal in human history and has been uploaded. And over the past two weeks, uh, looking for number four about the uh, famous Bridgeport case, uh, which we're going to be... Uh, doing doing the shooting for today, in which my dad works with Ed and Lorraine Warren. You can find our YouTube channel by going to our Facebook, or you can just type it in uh, Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, and that should bring you to our YouTube channel. So you can like that and subscribe to it. So we're running out of time, so why don't we jump to the, clo- the quote? Okay,
0: dad. yep. Uh, well, first of all, next Sunday, November oh, yes. 27th, we'll embrace the cheery subject of death with British author and philosopher Anthony Peake. And we wish everyone a very, very happy Thanksgiving. I'm Paul Eno. And
1: I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time.
0: Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.